You are listening to WRFG Atlanta, 89.3 FM. Up next, Alternative Perspectives, Atlanta's only queer radio hour. Hold on tight. And thank you so much for listening. This is WRFG Atlanta 89.3 FM on your dial. Welcome to Alternative Perspectives. This is Atlanta's only local radio hour devoted exclusively to issues affecting Atlanta's queer community. I, of course, am your host, Greg Bosson. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, the opinions expressed here, as always, are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily represent the views of WRFG, its employees, board volunteers, funders, or listeners. So I uh, am in the process of reading a new book that has come out. Uh, first of all, hi, how's it going? <laughs> it's been so hot. It's been horrible. Uh, but don't worry, global warming doesn't exist. Um, um, but uh, anyway, I'm in the process of reading a book, a uh, pretty big book. It is a nonfiction book that chronicles uh, the history of homosexuality in Washington, D.C. and in politics in general. Uh, it starts uh, with um, really the Roosevelt administration and goes through the Clinton administration. The book is called Secret City. Uh, the Hidden History of Gay Washington, and the author's name is James Kerchick. Uh, he is uh, going to be on the show tonight, which I'm very excited uh, to have him on the show. The book is amazing. It just came out at the end of May, and uh, I highly recommend it. So that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to talk to uh, author James Kerchick. And uh, what's really amazing to me, and I think you'll find it amazing too, is just how much uh, queer folk both supported and were an important part of politics or, and uh, of, well, of the administrations and of uh, running the government, uh, but also uh, the challenges uh, that they were, um, that they had to deal with trying to keep everything secret. Fortunately, that's not as big of a deal now. It's not a problem like it used to be, but... Uh, anyway, so that's what we're going to be talking about on the show, and we're going to do the news in a few minutes. I've got a surprise for the news, by the way, uh, and before we move on to the news, there's one other thing that I wanted to do, and uh, that is this is Pride Month, folks, and uh, so one thing in order to uh, kind of honor Pride is to give to our station, so I definitely want you to do that, uh, but the other thing is I wanted to play songs that were important during uh, Stonewall in particular. So I did a little bit of research, and uh, in the uh, early 1970s, there was an activist. Her name was Madeline Davis, and she wrote the very first Pride anthem or Pride song or gay liberation song that was explicit. Uh, it's called Stonewall Nation, uh, and I'm going to go ahead and play it for you now, but she's going to talk about it first and how she came to write the song, uh, but um, 
you can listen to the music uh, as you are making a donation. And then when we get done with that, we'll move on to the news where I have a surprise for you. But I went to the first march I ever attended in 1971. It was a march on the state capitol in Albany. We were at the head of this line of just hundreds of people, and uh, I'd never been in a march before, and it was scary, and it was wonderful at the same time. And um, I was so high from that experience that on the way home, I wrote in my notebook the words to Stonewall Nation and also a poem called From the Steps of the Capitol 1971, which is on the reverse side of the original 45 recording of Stonewall Nation. That was produced at the end of 71 by the Madison Society. I think we produced 545 RPM records, and um, people actually bought them. And I know that Craig Rodwell, owner of the Oscar Wilde bookstore, he would play it in his bookstore every June during Gay Pride. And I was, I was delighted. And again, that was Madeline Davis uh, doing Stonewall Nation. So I hope that you enjoyed that. Uh, it was very uh, folky, very folky music. But anyway, uh, important song nonetheless. So it is time for News of the Queer. Uh-uh. I know that's right. Oh, no, she didn't say what. And Although I think I'm somewhat interesting, I decided we needed to shake it up a little bit. So um, beginning with this show, um, the news of the queer, we're kind of branching out a little bit. And I want to introduce to you uh, Alexa Bryant. Uh, Alexa, welcome to the show. How are you? I am doing wonderful. Thanks, Greg, so much. I'm just excited to be doing this with you. Yeah. Thank you. So uh, Alexa uh, is going to be helping out with the news. She's going to be doing the news. Now, uh, Alexa actually uh, works with Georgia Equality, uh, and she is a Black 
queer media professional. She comes from Tampa, Florida. Uh, Alexis serves as the Development and Communications Coordinator for Georgia Equality, where her work focuses on executing communications strategies that lead to narrative change as they pertain to intersecting marginalized communities. Uh, she received her Bachelor's of Arts in English Literature with a minor in Sociology from Florida State University. Oh, I came from Florida. Uh, uh, Bryant's areas of interest include intersectional identities, Black feminist and queer literature and African religions. And before joining Georgia Equality, Bryant worked in the private sector as a buyer in the international gourmet food industry. But Bryant uh, views storytelling as vital to the process of advancing policy change and but you majored in journalism right I did yeah so I I spent my first two years in undergrad doing journalism and then I just wanted to be able to um, have more of a broader scope when it came to deconstructing text and storytelling so I ended in um, English lit with sociology so it works together quite well for me I will say cool and also she's everything that I'm not she's a woman I'm not <laughs> she's black I'm not so um and there's something else that you're not, that I'm not, I don't know. Anyway. Several so, things, uh, but not for this show. Yeah, probably not for this show. <laughs> All right. So what news do you have for us uh, today, Alexa? What do you got? Yes, Greg. So um, I think we definitely need to acknowledge, you know, this, some recent Supreme Court rulings that have come down, right? Um, it is the topic of really all conversations. The Supreme Court of the United States issued a ruling in the court case Dobbs, State Health Officer of Mississippi Department of Health versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, right? This is what everybody's talking about, Roe versus Wade and overturning um, the ruling that's basically protected our right to abortion or setting the precedence for privacy, right? Our right to privacy. And so I think we've, the media is oversaturated right now with conversation and just thoughts and opinions on this case. You could be on either side, the right to abortion, you could be pro, pro-choice or you could be pro-life. Um, and I think my, or my opinion is not what I want to focus on, right? I am I am pro-choice, put that clear, but I want to acknowledge what's happening, right? I sat down and I actually read the ruling. I read through the opinion of the court, the all technical language. Um, And what I really want to point out is how this ruling was determined based on definition, right? Definition of, of what it means, what does privacy mean, right? The right to um, make these choices with your doctor, Um, And on a broader scale, I think we're really, really hyper-focused on the fact that our rights was taken away, which is really important. But our community, marginalized communities, and um, specifically the LGBT community, I think we should step back and figure out how did they come to this decision, right? And then if we want this decision to be overturned, if we would like to have something specific like the right to abortion, how do we make a plan and a strategy to um, basically convince the courts? Because it's all about, it's all about definition. So when you're getting into the actual language of this, of the ruling, um, let's, let me scroll down here. Um, It says the constitution does not confer a right to abortion. Roe and Casey are overruled and the authority to regulate abortion is returned to the people and their elected official, right? And they reference the 14th Amendment. 
And they're talking about how to define, um, they talk about defining abortion pre-viability and they're calling a fetus, they're, they're saying it's pre-born life. And so I would love to hear your thoughts, Greg, because I feel like a lot of us haven't read the technicality of this case and really thought about how they're coming to this decision, right? You have to understand how the law is interpreted, right? And you have to understand um, before you before we can talk and, and form a plan about how to go forward to to fight the system, quote unquote, you have to figure out how this is coming coming to be. So I'm going to pause there, Greg. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I know I said a lot. No, I'm con- I get confused about this because I understand that um, they turned they overturned it. Uh, originally, it was uh, we originally wrote. Roe versus Wade was passed based on a right to privacy. So in this ruling, are they saying I don't I don't think they're saying we no longer have a right to privacy. I guess they're saying that in this particular this is not I don't even know. Do they address privacy in the ruling? Do they say this is they not, do. Yeah, they do. Let me read this, this first part, um, and, and it speaks to how, how they started to break down the fact that Roe versus Wade was not a, a good decision in, in the beginning. So it says, first, the court reviews the standard that the court's case has been used to determine whether the 14th Amendment's reference to liberty protects a particular right, okay? The question is, liberty and what does that mean? The Constitution makes no express reference to the right to obtain abortion, but several constitutional provisions have been offered as potential homes for the implicit constitutional right. Okay, Roe held that the abortion right is a part to is a part right to privacy that springs from the fourth, fifth, um, ninth, and fourteenth amendments. This decision grounded. This decision is grounded solely on the theory that the right to obtain an abortion is a part of liberty, protected by the Fourteenth Amendment's due process clause. So let's pause there. They're talking specifically about the word liberty. That is initially what they were going off of when it comes to Roe versus Wade. It was interpreted that liberty would protect a, per, a person's right to privacy. Right? They have this liberty pursuit of X, Y, and Z. Now the court is coming back and saying that the liberty, the liberty word and the cause, the clause in the 14th Amendment can, does not, as interpreted by the court, does not say they have a right to this abortion. They might have a right to other things, but it does not say that they have a right explicitly to an abortion. So that's the beginning. This is a very big conversation to have. And that's why I wanted to bring up the point of understanding these rulings kind of word for word. Because as I read this case, as the as the Supreme Court has written it, I come to understand that they are making this decision based off of definitions and how these words were interpreted and how they should be interpreted based off their written hundreds of years ago. Right. And yeah. so you can keep going, keep going. And so I guess my bigger point is we have a stance, right? And we understand that this ruling affects the queer community. This ruling affects marginalized community, people of color. It um, affects people with uteruses, right? Not just women per se, but women with uteruses. But we've got to understand how they came to this decision. And from my understanding, it is how they defined and interpreted, right? So we take it further. 
they're, as you keep reading, the court is interpreting based off of their perspective and they're using words like moral and ethical in how what the moral and ethic of the constitution was written hundreds of years ago so it really is all up to interpretation it's all up to interpretation so at the end of it all who you elect and put into these offices right from the local municipal level who you elect to your city council who you elect as your um house of representative your senator on the state level, all the way up to the Supreme Court is going to dictate how laws are written, how court cases are determined, and how laws are either enacted or overturned. And so at the end of it all, we have, I guess my bigger point, be active in the judicial process, be active in the legislative process, understand that a law is only a law until it's not a law anymore. And we see that we are looking at that happen day in and day out. So roundabout way of getting there. But did I answer some of the questions? Correctly? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it, it sounds, it does feel like an arbitrary decision that was made by the individuals on the court. And uh, it, it, it feels as though at this point, the only way to really make change is to vote is to get and and to get more involved in your local um and state politics because really at this point the only way to change this is through legislation and the only way to change it change legislation is if we have 60 votes in the senate uh and, and in order to do that you know it starts locally and bubbles its way up um, exactly. You know, because the local and the local officials, you know, and the state officials, those are the ones that do the gerrymandering uh, that create the congressional and the Senate. You know, it's uh, it's just it's it's um, and it's going to take many, many years. It's 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 a process. Yeah, it's very, very upsetting. I still I still don't get I, I and actually um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg herself said that that was a fairly um tenuous uh uh legal decision 50 years ago she was always a little disappointed and about you know she was always concerned about this as i remember it so i'm not i'm not surprised but i mean the republicans they did everything right i mean you know they really and and it was just no holes barred you know after um uh um scalia left and we had two more years in office you know uh uh uh, McConnell refused to seat somebody because then it was going to be an election in two years, you know, or a year and a half or something like that. And right. so, uh, so then Trump gets in, he puts in someone, uh, she put, puts in someone on the right, you Correct. know, and, and then, and then when, um, uh, when RBG goes, you know, what do we have like a week, 10 days before the election and then McConnell mm-hmm. goes, oh not this time now we're going to ignore our previous precedent and then they put another person exactly in. and then they squeeze in um uh Kavanaugh who you know had some real legitimate claims against him uh yeah. for abuse but it's just it's just been they will do anything to get where they need to go and it works right. it works well and because the i mean the law as written if you are able to work within the law as written 
And if that law is up to the interpretation of whoever is in power, you absolutely, if you've got the right people in the right places in the right seats who have the authority to interpret the law and authority to vote on the law, this is, this is, this is the result. And so, yes, you make the point of it starts at the very bottom of the very local level. We absolutely need to refocus our energy on my city, my county, my municipality, getting the people in there who believe in equity and equality across the board and who are willing to separate church from church and state. Because that's yeah. a part of that's a part of it too, right? So we could go on and on about that, but yeah. I just definitely wanted to acknowledge this idea of understand how our system works. Yeah. Period. Yep. That's that's where the true power lies. If you understand how it works, you too can have an upper hand in making sure that equality and equity prevail. So. Well, and I, I will I say excited, that. But yeah. Well, we 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 definitely have to move on from here, but. This is a direct result of 2016's election. That's exactly 100%. This right. was this was the plan. This was the plan and we can we can't deny that. I and all say, of those, my own and, opinion. And all of those people that were Bernie or bus and that wanted to uh, vote for the green what was her name in the green party um, but that, that refused to vote for Hillary Clinton. You know, because she was not left enough. She was not liberal enough. She was not progressive enough. This is the result as far as I'm concerned. You know, but anyway, anyway. All right. So let's move on. We've got a couple more uh, stories. Uh, What's what's next? Okay, so this one actually I think um, is is a good one to go into. Um, Coming from Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty Online, okay? Um, The title is First Russia, Then Hungary. Um, Now Romania is considering a gay propaganda bill, okay? Um, And I wanted to go into this story because it it sounds a lot like what we're dealing with here. Romania is considering a bill that would ban minors from being exposed to so-called, quote-unquote, gay propaganda in schools and in public life, despite warnings from rights groups that it would fuel Russian propaganda and disinformation campaigns and reinstate censorship in the former communist country. If that's not straight out of a book that we are reading and writing right now, okay? In Florida. Just, in Florida. Florida the yeah. don't say gay bill. It is almost right. identical. Let me read a little bit more. Seven lawmakers from the ethnic Hungarian UDMR, a junior ruling coalition party, initiated the bill under the guise of preventing child abuse and promoting child rights. The Senate tacitly approved the bill on April 27th in Parliament's lower house, the Chamber of Deputies, which has the final say, is due to vote this month. One more. The parliamentarians supporting the bill have said Romania was under threat from gender theories that have, quote unquote, taken Western Europe by storm and are, quote unquote, endangering Christian values and the traditional Christian family. Hmm. Pause there. So what we might think is a U.S. issue, what we might think is a state issue in Florida or Texas, this is a conversation happening globally, right? There is a movement, a religious movement 
specifically a Christian movement that is happening. And um, I would say that it, they are using their Christian rhetoric propaganda to incite fear. And then that fear is being used to push us, the queer community, into the margins and create laws that discriminate. You know, Greg, what are you, what are you thinking? I think it's, it's shocking and uh, amazing that uh, it just feels like we take one step forward and take three steps back is what it feels like these days. I just, and, and I, I still think it's, I still lay at least a chunk of this at the feet of Donald Trump. I feel like it's the, it's the direct result of Donald Trump saying, you know what, it's okay to be this way. It's okay to be violent. It's okay to say horrible things about people. It's okay yeah. to, to, you but know. Let me, but let me challenge that a little bit, right? Because I think Trump was a conduit and a catalyst for what was already lying underneath the surface. Oh, absolutely. Right? He, oh, was, absolutely. he was a talking piece that I believe they were planning to use for years before they needed someone who was going to come and be unapologetic about their far right wing religious beliefs, right? Mm -hmm. Someone who had enough money and enough power and enough status to sustain the weight of being the president, but who would say and do anything that he was told and paid to say and do my thoughts. I'll own that. Right? Well, and he doesn't care. I mean, it, the, the funny thing, it's not, it's not his belief system in the least. It's irrelevant. He has no belief system. It's it just doesn't yeah, whatever. no. It's whatever. Yeah. It's absolutely yeah. whatever. And so yeah. from from what he did, especially from like a person of color's perspective, of a woman's perspective, someone who lives in these kind of intersecting margins, what he did is he just lifted the veil up and gave permission for everything that say me and my community would have saying we they, this has been happening forever since i mean literally we were we were slaves like legitimately this has been the undercurrent and the undertone of the united states since its inception right, right. This, these are the values and morals and ethics that have undercurrent the law that we're talking about today that this has been the context that they've been writing these laws it's just now we had a president who stood up and said, you don't have to hide anymore. You can say and do all of these things, and we're going to use the law to support you in your efforts. Right. And so here we are. Yeah, no, and I mean, I'll never forget one of his, in one of his speeches, he looked directly into the camera, and he said, I am your voice. And I'll never forget that speech. And he is. He he he, he really is. he really if has. That's not a cult leader statement. I don't yeah. know what it is. Well, and I, and and there's an argument to be made that in a way, since it was already there, it it might not actually be a bad thing to bring it up to the surface and get it out for a little while. Maybe we can transmute it at some point. But anyway, let's move on. We got one more. Yes, um, one more. Time for one more. What you got? My bright spot, I always want to end with a little bit of joy considering, you know, the hell that we exist in sometimes. Okay, <laughs> so from today.com, um, there is a 14-year-old um, bringing a queer youth conference to rural Texas. Ninth grade student Mars Gamez and his school's LGBTQ student group want to provide, quote unquote, safe space in the small town in missions um, of Mission, Texas. OK, think about that. This young young student is bringing a queer conference to Mission, Texas. Um, so it says a ninth grader in Mission, Texas is bringing a queer youth conference to his rural hometown after winning ten thousand dollar grant 
from the nonprofit group, the It Gets Better Project. Mars Gamez told today that he was inspired to apply for one of the LGBTQ advocacy groups, 50 States, 50 Grants, 5,000 Voices, initiative after learning about them from his club advisor, Alexander Hernandez, in seeing the program advertised online. The initiative, in partnership with American Eagle, aims to provide 50 grants to student projects. Gamez, the president of Warrior Prism Alliance, the school's equivalent of a gay-straight alliance group, said that the students decided to do a conference because of how small their own community is. Now, it does not go on to explicitly say that this beautiful young child is of the queer community, but I love that he is willing, or this person is willing to take a stand. What do you think about that? Well, in Texas especially, I think it's it's really impressive. Uh, and the, the population of the city, it's less than 100,000 people. It's a tiny town. It is uh, tiny. I've heard of Mission Texas, okay? I have and it not. can be a scary place for anybody that is living under any margin, whether it be race, um, a religion that's not of Christian faith, whether you're queer, it is. It it can be a rougher, a rougher environment. Yeah. Um, the bravery yeah. of this kid to 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 choose to do this in the innocence, right? The just deciding that he wants a safe space, and then having this teacher. There's a teacher, Hernandez. He's. Um, it says that the school's advanced placement computer science teacher and faculty leader of the Warrior Prism Alliance or their GSA, right? This teacher supporting him. It's awesome. Yeah, and it's right, it's almost on the, it looks like it's on the border um, mm-hmm. with Mexico. Wow, that's trippy. All right, well, thank yeah. you so much, Alexa. I appreciate you joining us. Um, it's refreshing to have uh, a new voice besides my own. <laughs> I am so honored to be able just to have share this space with you, Greg. This has been awesome. Thank you. All right, all right. I'll see you next week. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye, Greg. Bye-bye. And that was Bronte Beat, a small town boy, uh, for those of you that were around dancing in the 80s and the 70s. Uh, welcome back to Alternative Perspectives. Again, this is a, Atlanta's only local queer radio hour, uh, and it, you are listening to WRFG, Atlanta 89.3 FM on your dial. I am your host, Greg Bosson, and thank you so much for listening. So. A book has come out uh, in uh, on actually the last day of May of this year, Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. And we have the author here of the book, James – and James, is it Kerchick? That's Am I correct. Saying? All right, cool. So I said it right. Uh, James, who is a columnist for the Tablet Magazine uh, and writer-at-large for Airmail. Air Mail. Uh, and the author of the book, Secret City, The Hidden 
history of gay Washington. He's also a, a widely published journalist. He has written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and the Los Angeles Times, amongst others. So um, very excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us, James. I'm sure you've been doing a lot of these interviews. Thank you for having me. All right. So, uh, so there is a, a lot to unpack here in this book. Uh, it's almost an encyclopedia of uh, homosexuality in in, um, in Washington, D.C. You know, one thing I did want to uh, mention before we even get into the book itself is I don't know if you're aware of this, and, and maybe you are, but if you look yourself up in Google, uh, you are described as a neoconservative. Is that is that right? Or is I that wouldn't believe a- everything you read on Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> I, thought, I was like, how could this possibly be? So anyway, so that not the case, not the case. All right. So uh, so there's all kinds of stuff that I want to that I'd, I'd like to to cover here. Obviously, we're not going to have a ton of time uh, to do that. But uh, I wanted to start with uh, one thing that you talk about at the beginning of the near the beginning of the book. Um, and that is, is that y- you have a sense that Washington is both extremely gay and also not gay at the same time. And I, I, I wanted you to kind of flush that idea out for us because I feel like it's kind of at the core of the theme of the book. Well, the opening song you played, Small Town Boy, I think is very relevant in this regard because in the 1930s, you know, Washington becomes a big city because of the New Deal um, and, and later on World War II. Uh, And the story of gay people in the 20th century in America is really a story of urbanization. It's gay people leaving small towns, uh, provincial lives, um, and moving to a city where they can maybe perhaps be more anonymous, where they're not, you know, suspect to the prying eyes of their neighbors, where there might be something of a gay subculture that doesn't exist in more uh, remote and rural parts of the country. So that's when Washington starts to develop a sort of gay underground society, um, a, a sort of gay, a gay subculture. And I also think Washington as a city was particularly attractive to a certain type of gay person, particularly a gay man of a certain generation. Uh, the author Andy Tobias has coined the term the best little boy in the world um, to describe Gay men who, you know, as boys are, uh, they're not dating girls, they're channeling all of their energies that would otherwise go into chasing girls into schoolwork, uh, extracurricular activities, they're pleasing their teachers, authority figures, they're, they're hiding something about themselves. And so they're overcompensating in all these other sorts of, you know, academic fields. And that's the kind of person who succeeds in Washington. Um, you have to be very good at keeping secrets, very discreet. Um, you have to be very loyal to your boss, the ability to, you know, be available at the drop of a hat, late nights, weekends, you know, not having a family uh, can make you a more successful person in Washington in certain jobs, right? If you're going to be a chief of staff to a congressman or um, an advisor in some capacity. So Washington attracts a lot of gay people in the 20th century. But at the same time, there's this tension because you cannot be openly gay. It is the most destructive, uh, most dangerous thing that exists. Even at the height of the Cold War, it's worse than being a communist. So there's this real paradox uh, in in Washington in the in the 20th century. 
Yeah, yeah, and it, it it's funny that you would say that because I myself I did get all A's when I was mm. in high school and in college, and that's exactly why. Mm. Uh, because that's where I, where I was spending my time. It's also where I got myself work from because mm-hmm. I couldn't come out. Uh, yeah. So uh, yeah, no, that makes that makes perfect sense. So you touched on uh, the Cold War, and that was another thing that I I really noticed. Um, that there seems to have been a real shift in how homosexuality was thought about and dealt with uh, in Washington before the McCarthy era and then during and after the, the McCarthy era. And I, 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 it, it felt like gay men were largely left alone uh, before the McCarthy era as long as they were good at their jobs and kept their homosexuality private. But this changed uh, during the McCarthy era with the beginning of the uh, the Red Scare and the Lavender Scare. So I, I thought we could talk about that just for a few minutes about specifically what happened there. Yeah. Um, homosexuality really becomes securitized with World War II and then even more so after. I mean, prior to World War II, you have to understand the United States didn't really even have a concept of national security. It was, was not something that, that really mattered. There was no National Security Council. There was no CIA. Um, There was no bureaucracy for managing secret information. America was not a world power. Um, It was isolationist. And then World War II changes this completely. It changes America in many ways. And one of them is that we become a superpower and we develop a bureaucracy for managing the collection and the the maintenance of top secret information. And this is when homosexuality goes from being merely a sin uh, and a medical condition, something that is, you know, obviously very taboo in American society. It's not something that's spoken of. Um, and it becomes a national security threat because the fear is that homosexuals will be more liable to blackmail by foreign powers, that they're more susceptible to being induced into, into treason. Uh, and we see this in the case of, of Sumner Wells, who's FDR's undersecretary of state, who is... Uh, caught propositioning porters on a train and he's able to survive for a while and FDR is able to protect him. But as the United States enters into World War II, the argument is increasingly made by Wells's adversaries that he presents a national security threat and Congress and senators on Capitol Hill start threatening investigations and FDR has to demand his resignation. Also around this time is the first outing in American politics and it's a direct consequence of World War II. Uh, it's a man, a senator from Massachusetts named David Walsh, who was a conservative Democrat. He is accused of patronizing a male brothel in Brooklyn, right near the Brooklyn Navy Yard, uh, that was frequented by Nazi spies. Um, and it actually isn't true. Uh, he, it's a case of mistaken identity. Walsh probably was gay, but he was not in this place at that time. Um, but the justification for his being outed uh, is not just that he's, you know, immoral and depraved and all these terrible things that would be used to describe gay people because he's on the, he's the chairman of the Naval Committee in the Senate and, he, and we can't have someone who's in this position uh, who's liable to be blackmailed. So it really changes around World War II, but it, um, the conception of homosexuality changes. But then really during the Cold War in the McCarthy period is when the full-scale purges of gay people uh, begin. And in February of 1950, Joe McCarthy gives his famous speech where he declares that there are 205 members of the Communist Party in the State Department, 
And then just a few weeks later, when the Secretary of State is called to testify on Capitol Hill, he brings a deputy with him who just mentions in passing and answering some questions that 91 homosexuals had been fired from the State Department over the previous three years. And this is when the two become conflated, when communism and homosexuality start to become conflated in the public imagination. Uh, communists like homosexuals, they live in secret, they live in the shadows. Um, you can't spot a communist just as you can't spot a homosexual. They could be anyone. Uh, and also this belief that sexual nonconformists, which is what gay people are, they're not, they're sexual minorities, or would also be political nonconformists or po political subversives. Uh, and this leads to just a full-scale purge of not just gay people, but anyone who can be suspected or accused of being gay. Um, and it's estimated that seven to 10,000 people are dismissed for this purpose um, in the 1950s alone. Yeah, it's so sad because of what we lost, uh, yes. what, those, what those individuals could have done. A couple of things that are, it's somewhat ironic, but I mean, I guess it's not surprising, but I find that the, um, the leadership, the presidents, um, the concern is political. It's not as if they actually think that there's a problem with any of these individuals being gay at all. It's simply, you know, the idea that it might hurt them politically, right? It's very, yeah, it is very conditional and it's based on politics. I mean, just to go back to FDR, I mentioned these two scandals, you know, in the case of Sumner Wells, who was a friend of his, a personal family friend, they'd known each other for decades and uh, he really liked him and valued his advice. Um, he was willing to go to the mat and defend Sumner Wells for years, while simultaneously he was supporting the attempt, the outing of David Walsh, who, although was a Democrat, a member of his political party, was a conservative Democrat. He was an isolationist. He was an adversary of FDR's. So FDR can, you know, have, he, he, can, he can perform these two actions. He can support uh, a gay friend of his and defend him from the people trying to destroy his career, while at the same time, he can use those same tactics against a political adversary. Um, so yeah, there isn't much principle involved with this issue. It really is about politics. Yeah, totally, totally, which is sad. I wanna, I'm going to dial out. I want to get more into people, of course, but uh, one of the things that I thought was interesting was just the, in, in D.C. itself, like the space seem to be a place where well at least in the 80s when i when i was there you know i had traveled there and it was the <laughs> i went to this bar called follies in dc which you probably have heard of back in the yeah. day yeah but um and this was the first bar and i think it was one of the very few in the country where men uh, men could expose their erect penises and i sat at that bar here i am in dc and I'm sitting at this bar watching a dancer massage or jerk himself to pre-cum on stage. And I'm thinking to myself, I can't believe this is happening, you know, in the middle of this supposedly, you know, conservative city or whatever. I just thought it was ironic. So I wanted you to talk a little bit about the spaces that uh, exist, like mm. um, Lafayette Square yeah. um, uh, and uh, in um, – you know, in D.C. over the years, so going all the way back in time. Um, yeah, well, Lafayette Square is really the first identifiable gay cruising ground mm -hmm. where people are, uh, where, where men would seek sexual relations with other men. And 
There are police reports dating back to the late 19th century of the police um, arresting men in Lafayette Square for this. And really, Lafayette Square really remains the main cruising ground well into the 1960s. There's actually a line in the play and later the movie, The Boys in the Band, um, where one of the characters is returning to Washington and, and one of the other characters says, oh, will you be visiting Lafayette Square? So that, it's a very popular, well-known place. And it's you know directly across the street from the White House, um, which I think is very symbolic of what gay Washington was like. And that you could have men you know, cruising for sex right under the, the nose of the president of the United States. Um, the gay bar scene um, really doesn't, you don't really start getting kind of official gay bars until the 1940s after World War II. Probably the most popular is one called the Chicken Hut, which is, which is also close to Lafayette Square. Um, there was a restaurant on the first floor and a bar on the second floor, which was basically for, for gay people. There was a, a man would play piano uh, and, and sort of change the lyrics to the songs uh, to make them sort of vulgar and dirty. Um, that sounds like it was a really fun place. There was a... Um, There's a bathhouse. Bathhouse earlier. Bathhouses don't really begin until the late 1960s. Um, and they they really start in um, Southeast D.C. Um, and that's also around the same time that you get what are then called super bars, which are basically giant discotheques in the size of, you know, like an airplane hangar size, size buildings, thousands of people, um, could, could dance in these, in these places. Um, and DC is actually really a, a disco capital in the 1970s. Uh, the most popular one of these was called the Lost and Found. That 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 was really the most popular of the of the gay super bars, um, and these bars are are important in a sense in that Barney Frank, the congressman, once described them as being like neutral Switzerland, and uh, that you can have all these gay people who some might be Republicans, some might be you know Democrats, liberals, conservatives, people who work for corporations, people who work for labor unions. And they would all be in this bar together because they all had the same secret. And they wouldn't, you know, no one would out anyone yet. This is in the 70s, early 80s, right, before outing becomes a thing. So everyone can be united by this shared secret because outside that secret could be quite harmful or destructive. It could get them into trouble. It could be a liability. Um, but everyone shared that secret inside these um, so these social venues. Yeah, it's something that... Uh... I don't know. I guess it's a positive and a negative. You know, there's, there's, mm. there's, it really gives you a sense of community that I guess, um, you know, your standard straight man might not necessarily feel. Uh, so no. something good about being uh, a homosexual, I guess. Uh, we're gonna, I'm going to introduce you real quick, and then we'll take a break. This is James. We are st you're listening to Alternative Perspectives, and we're speaking with author James Herchick about his new uh, book, uh, just out, uh, really, uh, this month, uh, Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington, and we will be right back. Out in loud on Hare Street, that's where the boys and gals do meet, doing that rag, that Georgia rag. The following is a public affairs bulletin board announcement brought to you by your station for progressive information and hand-picked quality music. WRFG 89.3 FM, WRFG.org. 
Little Five Points Community Center, home of WRFG Radio and several other nonprofit arts organizations, will be dedicating the eagerly anticipated Blind Willie McTell Mosaic. A ceremony, cookout, and concert will be held beside the mosaic on Saturday, July 2nd, 2022, from 2 to 4 p.m. The mosaic's creator, Jason Evers Johnson will discuss the project's creation and restoration, and singer-songwriter-guitarist Bill Sheffield will perform two sets of acoustic blues. This is a non-ticketed event and open to the public. For additional information, the Little Five Points Community Center's website is www.l5pcc.org. That's l5pcc.org. O-R-G. Well, throw your hat way up high, grab your daddy and make him cry, doing that rag, that Georgia rag. are back uh you are listening to alternative perspectives that was it's my life by talk talk uh and we are speaking with author james kerchick about his new book uh secret city the hidden history of gay uh washington so uh james i just want to um i I think what i want to do in the time that we have left is uh I'm going to give you a couple of names and you just talk about, uh, it's just, it's, it's really amazing. The book is huge and is, it reads very well, by the way, it's very easy to read, uh, even though you, you know, I describe it as an encyclopedia, but it's really just a series of extremely interesting stories. Uh, so I, I think that, uh, it's very digestible. Um, so, uh, Robert Cutler, the Eisenhower administration. So who was this individual? What was his importance? Robert Cutler was the nation's first national security advisor, known at the time as the assistant to the president for national security affairs. This is a job that's instituted under the Eisenhower presidency. And so he's, he's Ike's you know, closest real national security um, advisor, uh, aide. Uh, he's also a closeted gay man. Um, we know this because there was a biography published, of, published about him a couple of years ago by his great nephew, who acquired... Uh, a secret diary that Cutler had kept where he uh, basically writes about his unrequited love uh, with, for another man. Um, and Cutler's a pretty tragic story. He uh, basically writes the executive order or he writes the language in the executive order that Ike signs in April, 1953 that um, codifies anti-gay discrimination that makes it uh, that, that bars uh, sexual people with sexual perversion from working for the federal government and denies them security clearances. Um, and that ends up leading to thousands of people being purged from the government. So it's a, it's a tragic story with, with Bobby Cutler. Yeah, for sure. Um, Walter Jenkins, Johnson administration. Walter Jenkins uh, was really the closest aide to Lyndon Johnson. Had been working for him since Johnson was 
uh, a congressman from Texas. And he was a father of six, a devoted Catholic. And in 1964, October, just three weeks before the uh, presidential election, he is arrested for having sex in a uh, the YMCA bathroom across, just around the corner from the White House. Um, and this becomes uh, a front page story around the country. Um, LBJ is freaking out. He thinks he might actually lose the election. Uh, he's running against Barry Goldwater. It would end up being the biggest landslide in modern presidential history. Um, but he was so afraid that this might lead to um, speculation about whether or not Jenkins might have been uh, you know, suborned by a foreign power uh, if he presented a national security threat. Uh, and it ends up not really having a role. And most Americans kind of shrug. They don't, you know, they think it's sad, right? But they don't, they don't think it's um, uh, worth that, that, that it should lead to people voting against LBJ. So it ends up not being as big a deal as, as LBJ feared. Yeah. Um, one thing that I've noticed too uh, in reading the book, I mean, it's probably fairly obvious as to why, but these are all men, you know, you know, do where are women in this? Well, this is a broader story. I mean, this is a book about political power in Washington from uh, the New Deal to the Clinton administration. And it really isn't until the Clinton administration that you see women in, in appreciable numbers, you know, occupying leadership roles mm-hmm. um, in, in, in the federal government. You know, there just aren't that many women in Congress, in the Senate, in the executive branch, um, in the military. They're just not present. No. Um, same goes for African-Americans, too. So I, I do write about some lesbians and African-Americans in the book, but really only in respect to their proximity to political power. And they just didn't, you know, there really wasn't much of that in this, in this time period. Right, right, right. Now, I'm going to go way back in time just because um, I thought it was interesting. It's, just, it's like something I just wanted to make sure that we touched on was uh, Lincoln uh, and yeah. his relationship with Peter Doyle. So I, I, I've heard rumors that supposedly Lincoln, uh, uh, I don't know that you would describe him as homosexual, maybe more bisexual. I mean, he had a wife and children. But, um, but uh, talk a little bit about uh, Lincoln and, and uh, what you learned in your, in your study. Um, I, mean, I, only had a couple sen- I only have a couple sentences about Lincoln because my book starts with the New Deal and mm-hmm. um, other scholars have written a lot more about Lincoln. There's actually a book about that speculates about whether Lincoln was gay, the intimate world of Abraham Lincoln. Um, it's based on his correspondence largely with uh, a man who, with whom he shared a bed uh, on the American frontier in the early um, uh, 19th century, uh, which is not uncommon, but these, these letters are quite steamy and suggestive. Um, so I can't, um, you know, I can't speak as to whether Lincoln was gay or not. Also, you know, the notion of a homosexual is not even really a, a, a concept at that time. Um, but um, I would, yeah, I would urge your readers to, to check out that, that book. Um, yeah. Something that interesting. So just in the last few minutes that we have, in the few minutes that we have left, um, I guess there's a couple of things. What... Uh, what is it that, uh, how is it that you ended up deciding to write a book like this? Because I don't think there's, there's any other book that kind of sets out, puts all this information together, I guess. What is it that made you decide to go in this direction in the first place? 
Well, I've always been interested in Cold War history, um, just that period of, of American and global history, really, all aspects of it, es- espionage, um, the sort of battles between on, on, on the left, between the anti-Stalinist left and the pro-Stalinist left in the 1930s and 40s, um, anti-communism in the United States. Um, I'm interested in American politics and American political history. And the more I read, uh, the more I studied, the more I realized that there was this issue sort of lurking in the shadows um, of homosexuality. And that in a city of secrets, where secrecy is a form of power, as Daniel Patrick Moynihan said, uh, there, there was no secret more dangerous than homosexuality. And so that just seemed like a very fascinating theme to study um, and study the trajectory of this theme over the course of uh, this, you know, real 60-year period. And what did you, what do you feel like you learned from, from this that you maybe surprised you? Um, well, one thing that really surprised me, I guess, was just sort of the gayness of the Reagans. Um, I, mean, I always knew that the Reagans, and particularly Nancy, had gay friends, but the degree to which they were sort of associated with gay people, the degree to which there was a fear that because of this, even Reagan himself might be perceived as gay, uh, it was not something I was aware of until really doing the research for this book. Um, and I think it helps explain partly why there was such a hesitancy uh, on the Reagans to really do anything about AIDS. I mean, President Reagan didn't even utter the word AIDS until September 1985, four years into his presidency, uh, sorry, in, into his second term. Um, and I think that there was just this concern that, you know, coming from Hollywood, being an actor, uh, being surrounded by all these gay people, that there was a fear that they would be seen as, you know, too, too friendly to, to gay people. And they also had to, they also had to deal with this Christian evangelical support base, which was, which was a new constituency in the late 1970s. And that really helped catapult into public office. Thank thank you so much, James. Um, I could, I really want to talk a lot longer than we have time for, but the book is called Secret City. Uh, the history of gay Washington, and I really think it's kind of a uh, kind of a have to book to read for anybody that is interested in um, in politics in general. But anyway, thank you so much for joining us, James. That is also going to do us uh, for the show as well. Thank you so much for uh, joining. And uh, next up, we have Peach State Festival, and we will see you next week. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you.